episode two. Fuck your agenda. Let's talk to Lou Niles. Hey, before we get started with Lou, Lou, welcome. Um, FYA, which we now lovingly call it so that we don't piss off every grandmother, is just a little interview show that we did. Uh, did one with Jake Nager last time. Uh, very well received. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we decided to do another one. Uh, we found somebody else we really, really wanted to talk to. Uh, my name is Joe Rinaldi. I do some of the questioning, but then I leave some of the questioning to Andy Boyd. Yeah, all the stupid questions come from me. So just get stuff about cars. Yeah, really, really if stuff we... that isn't really relevant to what the topic is. <laughs> so super sidetracking the situation. But um, I like the fact that you've really gotten off onto an economic tangent, and I I love talking about economics, man. I am absolutely intrigued by what you're going to do to bring economics into this particular. In the uh, least appropriate place possible. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Okay. Um, and who are we with? Who are you? That's that's Lou Niles over there. Lou is a longtime DJ from 91X. and what, That used to be sort of one of those, hey, let's root for Lou things, but now it's funny because Lou is now back with 91X doing a lot of project work for the loudspeaker show, putting something in nearly every week, uh, guest hosting here and there. Uh, but, you know, it's... A, interesting foray into probably what's next and we're going to go into a lot of it maybe uh some of your big festival ideas some of your big plans to do some film stuff uh, what you do with uh love machine films and um all of the stuff that goes into it where it all came from uh coronado spoiler alert uh and uh you know that kind of stuff the record label stuff how we know each other the similarity to the jake interview in regards to uh Moses Leroy and that critical seven people from the last podcast that you were n- name dropped in, which gave us the idea in the first place. And, you know, there's some friendship stuff in there. I think we were in each other's weddings and, you know, that kind of thing. But why not? You know, that's media. Hey, I left out a lot of stuff. Throw a few things in that you think are super important or that you want to ask us about. Wait. And we could use a timeline <laughs> if you got if you got a brief timeline of, you know, your experience in the in the industry. But before you do that, is this going to be weird? Like my wife and I, we can't dance. The reason that we can't dance is because she always tries to lead. Now, you're like one of these radio guys, and so you do the questions. You're like, what's this? These guys are questioning me. Like, is this appropriate? What's going on? Are you going to be able to, like, go with a different vibe in this thing? All right, over to you. Yeah. Uh, No, yeah, I think so. I think I'd go with the uh, interview, but that that is true. I'm uh, rarely on the interview end of things, so uh, I'll just kind of spoke when I'm spoken to in, in some ways, I guess. And then as we move along, I'll probably step on people's toes and things like that. Yeah, we'll probably say something that will offend you, and you'll have to chime in. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Exactly. That's Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, so a little bit of your background. I mean, obviously, 91X, and then what, what's, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, I mean, currently, um, uh, at 91X as a co-host on the 91X loudspeaker, um, which uh, I was actually a part of from the beginnings of it becoming a, a radio show. Uh, it started off as a one song piece in an amazing show called Listen to This on 91X. That was, I'm not sure when Listen to This started, probably in 85 or 86. I was 38 at that time. Mm-hmm. All right. Wait, 85? <laughs> Wait, no. Wrong. <laughs> and uh, yeah, 85 or 86, Kevin the Dead Dog Kid and Pam Wolf an amazing new music show back when 91X and maybe K-Rock and a station in New York and Boston were the cutting edge of rock in the entire United States of America. 
Um, and this was even more cutting edge. So there was a one song local music bit that Marco Collins did on Listen to This. Uh, eventually he talked them into giving us a show. Um, I was uh, also a phone op along with him on Listen to This. And uh, this uh, local music show called Loudspeaker started off um, back in 88, probably late 88. Uh, winter fall or winter of 88 so marco did the whole show at first or did you take off right then uh no marco was the host of the show and i was like his assistant i would almost call it a a producer of sorts i would go out and listen to bands and bring stuff in and say hey check this out and you know write out a you know this is this is the guys from that band the guitar player from this band the singer from that band this is their new band this is their new project and i would go out and search stuff out and go see stuff and he would go do that too, or sometimes we'd go together, but quite often we would go separately in different tastes and things like that and go see stuff, um, bring it in. And uh, he he moved on to a record label gig probably about a year, a little over a year later. And um, I got to take over the show. It's um, such a funny thing. I read that in the Union Tribune yesterday. Uh, that, that couple that got married at the Casbah and they go back every year at, on their anniversary and uh, hang out and the guy plays in some bands, but he says, it, it, it's true in all San Diego. Uh, if you're a musician in San Diego, you're not in just one band. I've seen that. I've, I've actually been shooting for the music issue for the past couple of weeks. And I see a lot of the same people all over the place. Like, right. Hey, you were also in this other band. Right. <laughs> and I mean, that's to your point, though. Like somebody needs a tour guide to look at San Diego music, probably more than most other scenes, because most of these guys, you know, have eight or nine that's that was the big joke in the jake nature thing just say 12 you know just say you're in 12 bands right now because it's too high for us to count or contemplate right. but most of these guys not me I know. <laughs> not me but jake i'm not in 12 bands how many you know? bands are you in just like six or seven not that many no bands. no i'm trying to be different I'm, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm in no bands all right me neither Zero, yeah. sweet yeah. that's pretty cool Oh, that's that's good stuff. Um, you uh, did loudspeaker, which we're going to talk a lot about uh, for ten years, uh, and then at oh, six, seven, yeah, eight, one, well, no, eight, maybe eight. And then what happened? And then what happened? I moved to Los Angeles. Okay, how did that go? What did you do in Los Angeles? In Los Angeles, A and R for publishing, A and R for record label. I did some television and film. For those less informed, was A and R stand for? Artist in repertoire. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Back in the day, it, it actually meant you found the, the songwriters and the producers, and then you placed, you know, sort of Motown-ish, um, you know, where the, the singers didn't sing, they didn't write the songs. Or you placed people with the songs and the, and the recorders, and the producers. Um, and, it, you know, it's still a lot of uh, good A&R is similar to that. Uh, these days, you know, uh, or back then when I was doing it, you know, finding, finding the band, finding the talent. Um, if they write their own songs, great, but maybe finding the right producer to put them with to uh, get that sound, you know, bettered and and put on tape. Nice. Or back then, it's like a producing. Kind so it's of super operation. interesting, you know. It's uh, again re- relating it back to 2015. Um, the church you're playing over at the Casbah. Right, and um, tickets are being scalped right now online for like 80 bucks for one of those. We talked about it in an earlier show too, but isn't that Marty Wilson Piper? I know. I, I felt like I should have gone to that show, and then next thing I know, it was sold out, so I didn't, I didn't know what kind of effort I should put in to try and hook up with Marty. 
Marty Wilson Piper yeah. produces records too. Lou put artist on his label with Marty Wilson Piper as a producer. Yeah. Gotcha. Very, very interesting. What a great real world example for 20 somethings to like, yeah, okay, so that's ANRO. Now I get it. Right. Yeah. Thank you. And then, uh, like, for example, one of the bands I worked with on the label um, at Ultimatum Music was a band called the Exes, which I didn't sign, but then I got assigned them when the guy who was there originally and our person uh, left the building. So I, I took over that situation. They had some people that were in line to produce the record, and I really felt like I... I kind of stuck my nose in the situation and brought a different producer to the table, and I really think that was beneficial. So it's interesting. Sometimes, sometimes you can bring somebody to the table that that just you know gets what you wanted out of the band, or just gets their sound on the tape. Maybe it even goes wrong, which I've had that situation before too. And then sometimes it it you know makes it better, really puts a, a better situation on it. The Xes were. Uh, a band in the vein of the Foo Fighters when they first came out, straight up four piece rock with a very, very huge pop element to it. And a guy with a really, really great knack for singing, uh, you know, it did a whole bunch of stuff and they, they morphed into an unbelievable direction. They went down a nine inch nails road and got rid of most of the organic part of their band and became essentially a producer singer band late in their career and this was all after they'd left ultimatum and fallen under the vision of matt serletic and that group of people who had flat out bought the entire project for a large large amount of money from ultimatum and moved on but so, so, you know he's saying yeah they might have changed direction it was a massive direction change they don't you know when i met them they were i, I talked to freddie herrera two days ago so i i, I talked oh, wow. to you know he's the the basis for everclear now Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, and Dave and, you know, so it was, it essentially became Scotty, you know, and it, either that's way that it, it, Scotty and a programmer, and that's, that's just sort of the way it wound up going. Wow. But I still pine. And this is the funny thing about Lou. Lou, how hard is it for you to move? Like when you got to move from one house to another, do you have to have a separate truck just for your collection of cassettes, old <laughs> CDs, demos. Uh, just, I and mean, what does your family think of that? You yeah. know, will will August participate in moving, um, moving five crates of cassettes? You know, when you have to move from one place to another. Um, it, I hate moving. I hate it a lot, and uh, some of it probably has to do with the whole uh, the crates and crates of vinyl and CDs and cassettes, and I'm. I'm going through the laborious process of trying to transfer some of that vinyl and definitely the cassettes before they're just toast. Yeah. Uh, See, Andy's Andy's your worst nightmare right now because he's gonna he's literally gonna like hold up and say, "I have your entire collection in this ring" or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, everything <laughs> you've ever wanted to listen to is available for free on the internet anytime you want. Not I mean, what he has. Yeah. If you if you've got not to, like, what he I, has. I actually last week had to buy a CD on the internet. Right. Just that, that's, so I think can... that's the first time that's ever happened. Yeah, I couldn't find the music anywhere on the internet. I'm pretty good at finding stuff on the internet. Um, so yeah, because Penny, their best song, the X's best song. Oh, yeah. you know, try finding that on the internet. Try going the Andy route. Try buying it on CD from Amazon. How do you, how, how do you spell that? Does right. does not exist. Does like, not like the coin. And here's the reason why, and it's a super. Good, there's two of these great examples, and we talk about them all the time. Penny by the X's. And the first version of Diamonds and Gold, 
mm. by Gregory Page. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know. I've got, I've got all the. I just looked at, and the, and and you know what? If if you want to get silly, you know, then I have the. I've uh, on some of that stuff. I have the vocals up. You know, version. Do you do you want to up one dB or three dBs, or do you want the uh, vocals down, guitars up, mix? Um, so I've, I've got some of that wacky stuff too, from. But that's the thing. What kind of digitizing equipment do you use? That's what I'm most excited about. You have a USB turntable now, huh? Yeah, I just have some crappy uh, cross. For what do we? What about for cassettes? Same thing. Yeah, you yeah. do auxiliary like line into your mic one. thing. Okay. There's nothing that makes me sadder about than digitizing cassettes. What? You, they're it's just it's they weren't the right answer to any to any question. They 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 disintegrate over time. And then they're broken, and you, they'll never it's be recovered. Such an Even imp- vinyl doesn't do that. It's such an imperfect sound source. It, oh yeah, I mean it's noisy. Have you heard of Hiss? I mean, Hiss only existed in the time of tape. I remember, like, I even like watching an old TV. It's like one of those old square TVs. Like, I can't believe we used to think this was acceptable. And like tapes and the same thing. I used to record songs off the radio with bad reception onto a cassette tape, so I listened to it. And that's I don't know. That's, that's so you and me were in Portland, Oregon. In 1999, and we're at Burbati's Pan, and the Xies are on stage, and they're singing Penny. And I can remember the melody and the vocal line like it was yesterday, and I can't remember a single other song in their entire set. <laughs> and it was largely the song, I think, the entire world would admit that got them signed in the first place. It made perfect sense. It was their plush. And they abandoned it, it never appeared on another record. There's multiple of these kinds of stories out there, but yeah. that is a particularly notable one. You know, and he, here you are in perfect circumstance. Did some A&R for some record people. You did some radio on the other side of this thing, and so you know what kind of appeal the song would have had it seen the light of day, and then there it is in a shallow grave. You, you like to think so. I like to think that, uh, I mean, there's a long list of... of bands that i heard that i tried to get people to sign or i tried to get people to play on the radio um that uh that people said no you're wrong and later on uh i was right or very right um there's also bands i passed on that got big that i'm still proud to say that i passed on them (laughs) so what a great time to tell the next story um we get a mandate, you and I, hey, you know, voice from the top, John, uh, JP, keeping things short and polite. Um, go see this band. They're playing over at the El Rey. You know, I, I, know, this, I know you don't like them. I know you really want to go sign, sign Phantom Planet. Uh, you know, I know you already met with them, whatever. I just think this band's particularly got legs. Joe, Joe, like, Joe's talking. Joe's talking about the time we were both together working for a record label. In you're Los fishing Angeles for a compliment. This is this is it. This is where he starts leading. Feel, feels like you set him up. No, no. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Lou got me my first job in the music business. It's important. It's important. There, there. I didn't have a job in the music business. What, I had, what year was this? And how old were you? Ninety nine. Okay. And I don't know how old I was. Sixteen years ago. Yeah, thirty something. Thirty something and thirty something is twenty eight and ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> Point is, uh, um, so yeah, Lou got me 
gig number one, and it was not the most bountiful gig in the world, but I was forever thankful for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Traveling in a small car across the country to do tour management slash retail seating uh, across the country at every small record store for bands that no one had ever heard about and didn't really care about. It was sort of thankless, but sort of really interesting, you know? Yeah. But... Part of that was I also got to do is a small label, so everyone got to scout, everyone got to participate in the A and R process, everybody got to participate in artist relations and all that, and some you know part and parcel of that. Yeah, I was in Portland and saw the Penny thing, and then oh man, all that stuff, right? Right. So wait, what was the point? <laughs> you guys go way back, I think is the point. So it was Penny, and and we were talking about. Um, P.S. I could not find that song on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Good moments that happen. You know what? uh, um, A moment, same label, just to kind of keep us still within the same topic. So, yes. We were talking about Kara's Flowers, and we'll come back to it. You said sometimes, sometimes, you know, as as an A&R person or or whatever, you said that that I I or a person like me in the position, you think you – you know the song, you know what's going to happen, and then somehow the band or whoever it is says, no, that's not right, that's not going to happen. I I cannot tell you how much crap I got from the boys in Moke when they were recording, uh, they are messing around with Roger Summers out in the valley, I think it was, and everybody was stumbling around trying to figure out what producer, you know, even going as nutty as having Bob Rock in and his famous comment when... John Loken said, do you know Pro Tools? And he said, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a razor blade and he said, yeah, I'm a fucking pro and this is my fucking tool. <laughs> I can't believe that that is a better solution though. Yeah. That me- meaning that he used tape and yeah. didn't, didn't mess with that digital crap. Well, I mean like. <laughs> it, it wasn't a better solution. The, the, the label wanted to hear, or at least the label heads wanted to hear that he did use Pro Tool because it was more efficient, it was digital, and mm-hmm. it would cost less money as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. But anyway, so I go to Moke and I said, you guys should really uh, try to record with Glenn Johns. You know, I just felt like their sound, um, Glenn Johns is just epic. Uh, he was an old man at the time and, and even older now, but he did some epic work with The Who, and I just thought that match would really blow things up for them. They, w- they went a more earthy, slow route, but uh, funny thing is now, Sean Janaki is working with Glenn Johns. All right, see? It's... So, I don't know, 20 years ahead? Yeah. It's called it. No, speaking of 20 years ahead or, or not, um, so JP sends us out to see this band, Kara's Flowers, against our wishes, and we go out mm-hmm. there and we hate it. It's, it's awful. It's a, you know, super... But hadn't we seen them like a bunch of times anyways? Because like, they always okay, warmed up for Phantom Planet. They were in the same crew, so they always warmed up for Phantom Planet or all those Troubadour shows or really whatever. really cute women, but I don't know if I super like it. Super skinny guy in front, and Kara's Flowers is such a bad name. They were thinking of changing their name, and you know he really wanted us. We, we, I went in personally. I turned in probably the sourest report in the history of A and R. Like, uh, you know, I would rather re- roast in hot oil than sign that band and work on this project for the next like eighteen months. And Curious Flowers became Maroon Five. Uh, they got signed by uh, a guy named James Deaner, who'd also done some sort of hit and miss work with Ultimatum at the time, and almost like an ultimate fu to Ultimatum. He's like, yeah. I'll take this like Kara's flowers that you're like untrained and our guy doesn't like that much. I'll groom them and see what I can't get out of them. And next thing you know, there's uh, them. Yeah, that yeah. was a mistake. Yeah. 
They got funded. They started a label called Octone, I think it was, yeah. with David Boxenbaum. And uh, they had a couple other things. I, I feel like they had one other band that did pretty well and three or four bands that did terrible. But uh, the Maroon 5 thing was probably enough. It was clearly enough. No, no. Um, we'll, post a, we'll post a discography for uh, Octone. Octone did very well. They had other stuff. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to name them. It's not researched here, but I'll put a list out. Lots of stuff you're familiar with. But yeah, that, that's my favorite thing to tell people about the, the one that it didn't get away. I still hate them. Hmm. I, I still would rather roast in hot oil than work with Adam Levine or that crew of people ever just in regards to I love their first single. They're probably great guys. They have really great stories that you have to love about them. Um, Adam Levine's my favorite Adam Levine story on, on the positive side is that, um, you know, they were running around as a band in West Hollywood and so was Prince and so they would run into each other and Prince would go to Adam Levine's band Maroon 5 and say alright let's battle and they would meet at a rehearsal space and the bands would battle they'd set up facing each other and one would do a song and then one would do a song and it would be like who was the better band that night does that still happen? It, that was that's recent news and, but why, why don't why aren't there more like band battling shows you, and only, why isn't that happening at the show on Friday? That has to happen um, <laughs> basically in cities like New York and L.A. only because the rest of it is just way too disorganized. But you can't... We got, we got a thousand people showing up on Friday. And I got two openers that might do it. Right. I mean, I guess... Uh, that could, sounds awesome. <laughs> Make it happen. Yeah. yeah. The point being, I mean, how do you not love that part of the story, you know, and they're great people. They're very, very, very good to the Viper Room. And the rehearsal space, and nobody's there, too. And that, I love those kind of stories where people are trying to, musicians are working at their craft and trying to um, hone their craft or get their creative juices going. Um, Mr. Tom Freund told me a cool story uh, the other night, a couple of weeks ago, about that, a thing like that where he, uh, Jason Mraz, uh, and Steve Poltz, and I feel like there's another guy involved. Um, they get together, they come up with a, it's like a, a group chat or something. They come up with a song title and it's the one song title. And then they all have to go away for a couple of days and come back with a song. And then they, you know, fight it out with who, who thought came up with the better song with that title. Um, and just to and who adjudicates of, that kind of thing. I think, they, I think they democratically do it together, but uh, it was pretty interesting because uh, it, he told that story uh, and then went and played a song that had the same title as a very popular Jason Mraz song. So that was, was it was better? Fascinating. I mean, you know, it was better in a different way. It was better in its own way, I should say. <laughs> All right, like in a worse way? Or no, no, cool. No, yeah, it was a, it was very Tom Freund, whereas the other one's very uh, Jason Mraz. Yeah. So. Your wife runs a company called Love Machine Films, but she runs it, but it's a family operation. So anybody with the last name Niles has some sort of a role with Love Machine Films. What's, yeah. your, what's your role with them? Even sometimes with the last name Brulo, but uh, um, uh, it's definitely family. I, I, uh, I'm an executive producer. Um, I get involved or have been involved you know, it, it comes and goes. I get super deep involved at times, and then sometimes I'm just there for uh, business and moral and advice. Uh, and Carly and her sister Linda work uh, work themselves to the bone uh, making that company go. So, 
Everyone thinks about film companies in terms of movies, full-length movies. How many full-length movies have you guys done? We have three uh, feature documentaries. And how long have, has Love Machine Films been a company? Uh, I think we're in our 11th year right now. As I was going to say, it's been about a decade, but three year, three full-length movies in the span of a decade for a small film company is actually kind of prolific. Yeah, well, um, we've also got over 100 short films. Right. Um, but the feature documentaries, uh, you know, to be honest, one of them is not finished. Uh, but uh, two of them are finished, and uh, one of them has been out to a few festivals. The other one, uh, that's uh, T-Kid, uh, the, the Nasty Terrible T-Kid 170 uh, film about uh, one of the legends of New York subway art and uh, early hip-hop. Uh, he is, uh, that film's done pretty well and we're still working on getting it out to a few more festivals and then hopefully distribution internationally. The other film called Dying in America really hasn't been out at all, but just got nominated for a San Diego Film Award and uh, hopefully we'll screen that movie in the next six months sometime this year and get that film out there. And then the film that's unfinished is called King of Pavones and it's about a uh, a renaissance man really who reinvented himself many times um, and is not in the shapers tree the surfboard shapers tree and really should be for inventing down rail and some fin uh, innovations probably about 15 years before the the people that are famous for doing it are credited with doing it wow so it's, it's some and interesting th stuff you were recently asked to uh, be a presenter at the debut of it's about to blow oh yes uh, and that was where was it at um that was at the museum of photographic art which i'd never been to before and i love that place i love that place as a venue for any number of things um well they do they do a third thursday sort of uh, uh music presentation in the summer they do well and with djs and stuff like that, that. yeah they had um uh, paul jenkins played uh, live with his Yukon uh, Dreams project um, and uh, it was a beautiful venue like stars on the ceiling and he opened that up and then uh, went into the film and then had a Q&A afterwards and you're in the movie? I'm actually in the movie yes yes and uh, are you good in it? how was your outfit? <sighs> I don't think I'm very good in it at all it's it's odd that I'm I'm putting so much energy into promoting the film um because of that but i guess to uh my testament um it's showing you know a little lack of ego um that i'm promoting the heck of a film so the, I, I don't think i'm very good in who's the <laughs> who's the guy who made that movie uh this uh, gentleman named bill perrine uh made this movie and um he in his own words he, he wasn't really you know a figure in the scene back then uh the film is based it's it's called the uh, it's gonna blow it's about to blow the um, uh, San Diego Music Underground 1986 to 1996. So in his own words, he 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 really wasn't a figure in the scene back then, um, but he was grew up with and was friends with some really important people from the scene back then, namely Stymie um, from Inch and multiple who other you managed. Yep, who I managed for a while. And uh, he just, it just came to a point where he knew this and he knew that and he had some footage and he knew some friends who had some footage and he decided he had to make this movie. And so then there's that movie and then I always mix it up with the Marco Collins movie. 
It was called like Glamour in the Squalor. Wait, wait, it's oh, not, yeah, it's it not out yet, right? No, it hasn't come out yet. So they're still trying to get it out, but I've heard of a thing. What? I knew that existed. Right. <laughs> hey, yeah. Andy Boyd. <laughs> Check. Ding, ding. <laughs> so there's that, and Gary Husband does a bunch of stuff. Um, and who else is there in San Diego that's putting movies out like at this sort of quality that people are really paying attention to? I mean, this this thing, it's about to blow. The the uh, screening that you did at the Museum of Photographic Arts was oversold by a hundred. Yeah, you know, it was like a Jehu show. It was crazy, um, and that film has actually been selling out shows i i would say it's probably done over 20 screenings around the united states and from what i've heard almost everyone has sold out nuts um there was a couple shows in portland and seattle um and those sold out at pretty pretty good sized theaters um so it's coming to long beach um march 14th uh, I am spacing out what the venue is, but there's going to be a couple shows in, or at least one show in Los Angeles, probably in late April, and uh, I'll probably be uh, doing the Q and A for all of those. Cool. Which I'm really excited to do. Well, on on our site, we'll put all the details for all those showings, so that anyone who wants to go and try and see it on the road trip. So beautiful. Just, obvious question is. Um, why aren't they f- there five more showings in San Diego with that much latent demand? I, you know, hey, it, economics. Let's roll it, with that. It is a little confusing to me. Um, I, I'm also shocked at the lack of support for this film in uh, in the San Diego scene. Um, it, it's it's. I mean, it has sold out, so you, you could call me wrong. But they've been very small theaters. I, I think you could definitely do. Uh, a couple more screenings in in San Diego, but it, it's interesting that uh, you know obviously I'm I'm in the film, but uh, you know I don't think I I, I, I wish a lot more uh, that I said um, was in there, and I wish that I you know came off better, but maybe I'm overcritical of myself. Um, yeah, that's silly. But uh, I would <laughs> I would hope that if there was a film that came out about the San Diego music scene, I'm so passionate about San Diego and the San Diego music scene. I've always tried to to help it. When I went to L.A., I was trying to sign San Diego bands uh, like crazy for years. Um, I would hope that if there was a, a film about the San Diego music scene from 1977 to 1981 or... Uh, uh, right now, nineteen, you know, ninety-eight to two thousand fifteen, that uh, I would be behind it and supporting it. It's interesting. The scene is kind of. I'm I'm actually super rabid about going through uh, all the old uh, Beat Farmers videos uh, and checking out the, the YouTube portfolio for uh, the Jacks and the Paladins and the, just seeing footage from when I was really in my twenties and it, it was a like big deal. And these guys were getting signed, you know, obviously beef farmers got signed to MCA and were thought to be, uh, coming right up and be in the Bruce Springsteen vein. And it just didn't really happen for them. Right. You know, they, they did a whole different thing that not with, there was no lack of trying. They never stopped touring. They never stopped producing. They never stopped making records, you know, uh, you know, Joey Harris and Jerry Rainey, like they, tagged up and made some records and tried their very best within the confines of the sound that was available to them in the middle eighties and, you know, going into 1990 and tried their very best. And there's a bunch of great stuff out there, you know? And so there really is a lot of footage. Out oh there. my goodness. Yes. So I was always so jealous of, of, 
you know, <laughs> these kids today. But, uh, and, you know, it, it's sort of my fault too. I was part of a crowd that, you know, was too cool for school. So we didn't take pictures and we don't have pictures, you know, because we didn't, it wasn't cool to take selfies. Lou, back then. Lou, you're talking but, to the guy who played at the Belly Up and at his record release had Greg Allman sit in. And, and there's no not footage. a there's not a fucking picture of it anywhere. Oh, it's true. So it's it, there's some print. There's some print in some rags, but that's about it. So I always think of today that everybody's got footage of everything, and back then we just yeah. don't have it. I mean, but there's some other bands. I, I don't know the timing on it too much, but uh, there was a band called The Trees mm-hmm. that, that were from San Diego. They had an amazing hit called Delta Sleep, right? And then the Monroes had uh, What Do All the People Know. Um, I feel like the fingers did pretty good, or at least in the world I was from, because Joey Harris from Coronado, and they played the school dances all the time. Uh, the, that Girl's Too Young was an amazing song that he then re-recorded Joey Harris and the Speedsters. And then Anyone did pretty well, actually making, even making the, I don't know what they would have called it back then, the top 91 of 1983, which was the first year of 91X. NE1 was on there with their, uh, what was it, one two three. One, yeah, one, two, three was the name of the song. One, two, three, four, four, yeah. Little, <laughs> little ska pop band back then when ska, when the first ska break was happening, not the whole other one. But so, the, yeah, you could make that movie, Everything Before It's About to Blow. That'd be cool. And it's it's out there. You can, And I, that's actually way more where my interest is. Um, there's a whole bunch of that sort of, you know, what was the name of the guy that well, produced the miss the missing version of the Gregory Page stuff? What was his name? You mean John Doe? No, not the other. He that's the one that got released, huh? What the other guy? <laughs> Michael Vale Blum. Michael Vale Blum. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that guy was stuck in the decade I'm in love with. <laughs> right. That's the guy that I put with Dog Star and uh <laughs> you know. Okay, so we want to have a Dan Brozo-like story in honor of Dan who's under the weather. <laughs> we can tell a Dan story. No, I got a story, Let's and it's it. going to come from Lou. All right, Lou, here you are. You're in Japan, right? Yes. And so do we need there to, you... Do we need to talk about first why, no, why I'm stuck no, in this situation? No, don't set it up. Make the listener figure it out. Okay. All right, you're in Japan. You're with Keanu Reeves. Mm. You're going to a club. You walk into the club and you're wondering, how come in this club it's 50% expatriates from the United States and 50% a whole bunch of other people who seem like they paid about 5000 bucks to be there? Ready? Go. <laughs> Which club? <laughs> the uh, There's more than one? Yeah. This is news to me. We're friends. I just... Uh... I think this, I'm not sure which club, but there's, there's definitely... Uh, not the clubs that, that the they club played that at. had to run not, from? Not the clubs that they played at, but the clubs that they were taking you afterwards. Right. So this is, this is, this is a club we had to run from, I think, because of the, which was a bad choice, because of the expatriate situation. I think somebody... Because at the time, Keanu Reeves was exploding with the Matrix. So it, it wasn't like... Uh, you know, the Keanu Reeves of today, who's doing some cool indie films and things like that. Um, he, he was gigantic worldwide. And uh, all it took was one. All it took was one crazy, drunk sailor, whoever it was. Hey, have a Matrix, man. And, 
yeah, it got really sketchy. And luckily we had a really big dude with us who was uh, proficient in that type of activity. And uh, we escaped, we got it, we had to run. It was, it was like uh, I, I, several times in Japan, only when we ran into uh, Westerners, um, I felt like the whole, it's a hard day's night, <laughs> you know, and you're running and people screaming and, and hitting the car windows and flashing pictures. And um, I had a couple experiences where, okay, I, oh, now I get this whole paparazzi thing. Why, why? people who would never punch somebody punch somebody in yeah the they're total assholes yeah. well that's cool about the recording it now is there's usually one videographer with them so you can sort of get a little bit more of the circumstance of what happens Man. assuming that video gets bought i i, I feel like i um i'm trying super hard to get a, a picture painted of what was going on when you were over there because i've only heard about it in words from you but um uh what i'm getting at is that um, you guys wound up at an anything goes club with every supermodel that you've ever heard of on the planet there for some sort of a uh, magazine film shoot or, or uh, spread or whatever. And um, you guys just happened upon that entire thing and had to sort of deal with it. And you just sort of realized at that point, oh, so this is how the other half lives. This is this to me, this is one of those quintessential, this is how the other half lives things and i'm not going right. to get you divorced by just bringing the thing up it's not it's not really no. that at all it's a you're there like the big bodyguard is there hey kiana we we would really like to make the show tomorrow but i realize we got to go do this thing for appearances anyway so let's go through the thing but it's what you saw it's it's that part of it that i think is super interesting well definitely this that whole tour i mean until until uh, that tour um i Dates with Dogstar, and especially in Japan, uh, definitely, you know, some of the U.S. dates, you know, you get a taste of it. But until being on tour with Dogstar, I had only been on tour with uh, Inch and Rust, and I took Steve Poltz and Gregory Page and uh, Bad Mood Zeus on a tour. So we're talking like serious van and even car tours, you know, five, six guys in a van packed with equipment. It's deadly. It's dangerous. It's smelly. Um, it's brutal um, yeah, it on, on physically and on your mind. And, uh, you know, you see it, you see the tour buses, you you realize that it's there. Um, but this was my first experience. Later on, I got to go on tour with one of our artists and um, they opened up for the Goo Goo Dolls and Tonic. So, you know, they've got to experience some of the other real, real way to tour. But this dog star touring, especially in Japan, where they're just so gracious and treat you so well, especially if you're Keanu Reeves. Especially right then. So what is Keanu Reeves doing there? How did he get there? Um, He's he, in the band. He's in the band Dogstar. That was, it was his side project band. Oh. You know, like Scarlett Johansson's in a band now? <laughs> right. I did not you know, know that. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's true. And, you know, uh, Zoe Deschanel and these yeah. guys, they, they all get into the music scene after they've already become famous Russell actresses Crow. or whatever. Russell Crowe. Yeah. Never these, heard of any of that happening. No, it's true. And uh, at the time, though, and just the thing he's bringing up about The Matrix was just hitting is, is a gross understatement. Um, we got, I remember The Matrix. Matrix changed my life. It we, was great. We got a uh, memo from the artist people on Keanu's, from Keanu's camp about, hey, so his appearance is going to change because he just filmed uh, the closing scene from Matrix 2, even though Matrix 1 wasn't out. And um, so he's lost a ton of weight and he's got his hair cut as if he's a cancer victim. 
So I want oh, yeah. you guys to help us prepare his audience because he's going to look strikingly different from his press photos for the next six or eight weeks, which is the time we've allowed you guys to do the next Dog Star Tour. You know, so we're dealing with this kind of stuff all the time. But then you see that part in the movie and you're like... Oh, yeah, they shaved all his hair off. Right. And so if you're on the Japanese tour then and you got to see the part where he comes out looking like that part of the Matrix movie, that's extra special for you. That's like getting a signature in your tour book. You know, it, it, you know, you'll never forget. Oh, and he just on the Matrix, and he looks exactly like the thing in the movie. And yeah, it was a big deal. Nice. Ke- Keanu Reeves was, had a band called Dog Star, and um, Keanu Reeves' was acting Annabelle. career was uh, represented by an a- agency called Creative yeah. Artist Agency. Our the record label that Joe and I worked for at the time was half funded and supported by uh, the only larger agency in the world at the time called William Morris. So there was a little bit of a, hey, let's sign this band. Let's do good for them. And maybe we can spirit Keanu Reeves from Creative Artists Agency to William Morris for his acting career, which I did not even know that very lucrative. So uh, I was a good trooper and uh, they assigned me to work with Dogstar, which to me was a career suicide, career, career suicide, especially where I'd come from in San Diego. Why with, is that with career some suicide? Because cool, well, Dogstar is bad. Uh, <laughs> I had just been bad. associated with, you know, really cool bands like Inch, Rust, Drive Like Jehu, and they weren't cool. Truman's Water, and, and an actor's vanity project was not cool. So I went straight to them and I said, look, um, I, I've been assigned to be your A&R guy, but I don't want to be your A&R guy unless you guys want to get better. I sat in their practice room with them in Silver Lake and said, I, I want you to get better. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm saying you've got, you've got a base there and people shouldn't be knocking you as bad as you, you, you as bad as they are. You, you know, you're better than a lot of bands out there, but you could be better, I think. And if you really want to be better and you're not was just it? doing this to get chicks, then then let's do that. What's the singer's name? Brett Domrose. Brett, and then Rob Mailhouse. Rob Mailhouse, who was a, act, a soap actor. Right. He was a drummer. The singer wasn't an actor. Right. Um, and but, his vocals was kind of the, the, the main part that was like, I really think the rest of the music was, was pretty good. And Brett's vocals were, were okay. Um, but some of the songs were, they were all right. But the know? Matrix came out before you guys went on tour? Yeah, the major so, that so, really so is Dave, Andy. So, yeah, it is Andy. I I think they would have yeah they they would have done well regardless because of the bass player in the band, and um, the other thing that that I said that that really I think closed the deal with them signing with us because they weren't ready to sign with us, but I said I I don't want this to be Keanu Reeves band Dog Star or Dog Star featuring Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. And and I and I didn't know that that was their secret. It's somebody has to say that, you know. Right. If somebody walks in and goes, you can't you just know, drop and shakes like, Keanu Reeves' hand and doesn't look at the other guys and goes, "Yeah, we're gonna make this cool. We're gonna sell a lot because you're in the band." That they were gonna say no. So it, I said all the right things unknowingly that I wanted them to get better and that it was gonna be called Dog Star, not Keanu Reeves is Dog Star. Yeah. Or, gotcha. or dogs are featuring Keanu Reeves. Yeah, so, it's, it's it's Dogstar. Oh, is that Keanu Reeves band? Yeah, that's it. It's Keanu Reeves band. So is it, here we are in Japan <laughs> to go to your story and and this this anything goes club as you call it. It is not exactly that. It's more of a. It's still there. I, mean, I think you Google it. It's it's the Lexington Queen. 
There's a famous, famous club. Links. We'll have links. The famous club in Tokyo, um, uh, referred to by the cool um, locals or the pe- the people that know about it and go there as the Lex. Um, and it's where all the models go. It's where all the supermodels from Tokyo go. So worldwide supermodels. And then all the celebrities, you know, the, the Leo DiCaprio types who are have a penchant for, you know, being with supermodels in, in every carnal sense of the word, um, they go there and hang out. So this, of course, was where, you know, Robin, of, and of course, Brett, and then maybe so, maybe regrettingly so, I don't know. I couldn't quite tell. Uh, Keanu went along as well. So, of course, they took us to Lex. They treated us like kings. And uh, there's supermodels everywhere. And uh, I, I, saw, I saw this crazy drunk guy sitting in the corner. It looks so familiar, but boy, he was so overweight. Who is that guy? I know that guy. I know the guy from somewhere. I've talked to that guy before. And full circle to the opening song of tonight's, it's Jimmy Chamberlain. Nice. So we went to the Lex almost every night that, that we were in Tokyo. We went to other cities on tour. Um, uh, at least for a little bit, maybe sometimes only for an hour. Um, and, uh, because the guys got treated so well. So they went there for free drinks and things like that. And I saw a couple other actors and, uh, rock stars. Um, and that, that was the, that's the place. That's the place to go. If you want to see actors and rock stars. Why, why on earth would you bring up Jimmy Chamberlain? Because he was there. I know, but that's the funniest story you possess. <laughs> You're setting yourself up. That's awesome. When did you when did you first meet Jimmy Chamberlain? Oh God. So uh When was it? What year? What year was that? Um Bill Silva was kicking ass supporting local music and he took a chance to put Lucy's for coat on the God, I can't remember what other band was on it, but I know Smashing Pumpkins was a headliner. It was like a Brian Pavilion or a Bing Crosby Hall or something. Big ass, crazy, all ages show when they were just exploding. I think that album, uh, what was the name? What is the name of that album? That Smashing Pumpkins album? Simon's Dreams. Simon's Dreams, yeah. Um, and uh, Lucifer Coat kind of blew him away. But uh, so I was backstage. Um, and just love that band and was a big fan of the drumming on that album and just a moment to still to today that I feel just stupid you know sometimes you meet famous people and you just say something and yeah I think it's the only time though so you're backstage you you know 91X is probably presenting the show and you run into Jimmy Chamberlain and you get a chance to talk to him I get a chance to talk to him and and like the first thing I say I I just got I said I just want to tell you, you're a really great drummer. God, and you said that right there? Right there, just like that. Is he not a and drummer? it's just like, he is a drummer, but it's just one of those... Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, okay. Yeah. But, but what do you really say to somebody that you, you know, I don't know, what else were you going to say? Do you have right? a better thing lined up now? Do you have any cars for <laughs> <Right>. sale? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, wow. I just felt like, you know, that Chris Farley moment was like, you know, like you meet Pete Townsend. You're like, you remember, remember that time when you're like, you're like doing like windmill with your hand and you're, and you're playing guitar. That was awesome. Dude, that, that was so awesome. That was and then, awesome. and then, and then you smashed it. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember? Do you remember that? 
yeah. yeah, it's better. It's better. Yeah, yeah. Did you, do you remember that time you were playing really good drums on that album? That, yeah, that was, that was really good. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, Lou, um, on the loudspeaker show, mm. we expect to hear you on the 22nd of March in some form or another doing a long-form show for the first time in a second. Have you done any other long-form shows on loudspeaker since you've been back with 91X? Uh, not since I've been back with 91X. Um, I came in, I guested with Roly a long time ago uh, when he was previously still at the station um, and was on for, I think, almost the whole show, just playing stuff. He would play some stuff. I played some stuff. Um, but it's been a long time since it was just, you know, press go and I'm the host or even major guest host. Really? Because I actually thought you did some guesting on, uh, when Halloran was out. No, no. He kept, he kept saying, Hey, I'm going to need you to come in. I've got to go back East for this or that or the other thing. Uh, you know, we should get you in there. So you know what to do. But they started taping him in for me. Um, and he just never, never went away. Have you heard TJ's <laughs> show? Yes, I have. In fact, uh, I, I usually, but I usually only hear it when I'm leaving loudspeaker and right. I'm driving well, I mean, just back to Ocean exactly. Side. So you're leaving at nine, and then the thing comes on. Yeah, you know. So what did you do? Did you have some sort of official capacity at all with Buckfast Super B? Yeah, you know, I did. Um, in in time and some period when i was in los angeles uh, in between jobs um when i was doing uh, multiple things and doing some work for you and for other people um i there was a small record label called walking man Records, right right walking man that's right and um they put out Buckfast super b and i did some radio pro college radio promotion for those guys that's cool i mean i just couldn't be prouder of tj just Stepped up, got that show, and where did he come from? You know, number one, um, uh, he's got uh, Phaser Control Studios, which oh, that's his. Okay, does right. a lot of stuff for ninety four nine anyway. They had a local show with Passion Pit there today, right? And it does a ton of production work, but it was started out as rehearsal, and then it got into recording, and he's done all that. But that's just number one. That's the business side of TJ. But he was in Buckfast Super B, and he's also got the Palace Ballroom, and he's got a, a number of other bands too. On top of all that, and uh, you know, he's always been around, always been doing stuff. He's probably the most energetic person I know of in the San Diego rock scene currently, and you know, just one falls into that category a lot, like Woodsy's, a lot like those guys. Like just everyone loves him, wants to do stuff with him, and everything. And so somehow or another chemistry wise it was a really good fit for him to, to jump into that show or whatever and um then he did it and then it didn't suck and then it didn't suck like four or five times in a row and so yeah you know we all knew him this isn't you know anything us versus them or anything like that we're all just floored that it's that good i i love it when it's that good you know and i i remember writing to both piles when piles was at 94.9 and and halloran when you know, Halloran still at 94 or 91 X and just saying to them, Hey, look, why are the shows at the same time? That doesn't make sense. Why are they even overlapping at all? And at some point, somehow or another, the, the gods made them run, you know, one after the other. So now you've got about five hours of programming all devoted in a single block and a single recordable block 
you can make your own po- podcast and then have that for the rest of the week and it's just awesome and you know to have to you know so piles goes to 91x so then you think that the 94.9 thing is, is going to wilt and die hmm. but then it doesn't wilt and die it becomes the tj show after a couple of other really good ideas but this one just caught and brozo's got a hand in it because brozo's like you know the guy making the thing go you know and so hey it, it happens to be working he's a friend of ours and we're super supportive and we're like i don't know how it happened but it couldn't be more perfect nice do nice. they do they, done. do they publish um like radio shows like blocks like that in for example podcast form so mm-hmm. They do it in smart cities like Los Angeles, but apparently in San Diego, it's illegal and punishable by death. Something. There's no archived uh, podcasts, radio shows. There really should be. Why why not? Because you can still leave the ads in there. I don't know. Is your your lawyer here? Does FYA have an official lawyer? Because, I mean, it's all about licensing. We we talk incessantly about how Um, silly it is about how the walk-on music for a podcast could get the whole podcast taken off if it's not done right Uh, multiply that times all this other stuff in regards to uh music and licensing and publishing in a digital format i understand that right yeah that makes total sense but the um for instance there's a radio station in los angeles and they're called kcrw and there's no part of their content that you can't find a way to stream or switch and transfer and time transfer into podcast form there's no part of it that you can't do that you can listen to the morning becomes eclectic from let's say january 19th 1998 your first day at ultimatum you could just go listen to that if you wanted to because it's there yeah it's just sitting there as accessible content that's awesome you know Mm. so imagine if um all of these loudspeakers you know all of these local 94.9s all of these shows with all these interviews and all this content uh were equally directly accessible and just think about it as a giant missed opportunity because somebody in on the 99th floor couldn't figure out how to trick the lawyers into getting it done i i would be very curious to know if it if if that's it or if it's just a uh effort and manpower with a little bit of money type of thing hmm I just I, I, I remember the effort when it was Indy 103 in LA. I worked really hard with the Indy 103 people to um, get their show, um, uh, Soundcheck, to uh, have a podcast format and not just be a live broadcast because of the how things were changing and how you could take a tough time slot thing and learn from people like the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys, when they were putting a record out, they did an infomercial, and they put the infomercial, which is running right when all of the vacuum cleaner ones are running, and the you know all that in the middle of the night, and just telling people to you know if you want to see this content, DVR it and then have it forever, you know, radio stations with their particularly bad time slots on Sundays that they were devoting to local music could do the exact same thing, and then they could distribute it. it if it you just did it, like, you could distribute it. You know? It seems like a radio station's already. Involved with ASCAP, you might see SAC and and that uh, recording and at least streaming, not selling or offering for download, but at least streaming uh, shows that already happen. I I I'd be very curious to talk to a lawyer to see uh, what well, the problem is. Well, like. imagine the record labels. Can we only... get a, Can we do a lawyer podcast? <laughs> we have a lawyer in here probably. Yeah, yeah but with the record labels probably only signed up to get their songs on those airwaves. And I can understand that an artist might not want his music digitally distributed for free. 
Not that that's impossible, but you know, it's actually really easy. Doesn't really make any difference at all. He, they shouldn't really care, but I can I could see them caring about it. Um, I don't know. There, uh, other stations are doing it pretty much without having giant lawsuits be the news of the day. Um, I think that um, there is some sort of a first tier market versus second tier market stuff going on where the industry is talking to markets like San Diego and saying, we're not going to even bother with this. In LA, I guess you can see how it's important to us. You know, where some extra distribution in this market might make it make sense, but to do it down here, yeah, I don't want to deal with it. Cause then, you know, people down here, they're just going to co- uh, cut and paste it up into small bits and it's going to become more Ill- illegitimate content and make sense. Not gotcha. for us. But I could see that with your, with your major label bands or your major artists, national and international. But for a local music show, it seemed like it, the more, the better, the more you can get your music out there, the better. And I'm sure there might be some bands out there who get advised or feel like that's a bad idea. But um, something that I'm working on uh, as a part of my being a co-host on loudspeaker is very limited and it's just a moment in time on a three hour show. Uh, sometimes the shows are chock full of people way overcrowded in my opinion with uh you know guests and and beer tastings and uh band after band after band um so it's hard to get uh some music in so i try to record my segments and get them in and what i'm going to be doing here in the near future what i've been working on is that a lot of my pieces are going to be longer pieces online on on 91x.com oh nice also offer with a video component it's a video component completely so um i want that yeah what the what the show is the episodes it's uh, it'll be called the in your neighborhood with lou niles um and then the segment i'll pull segments from the video to play on the loudspeaker show so my on-air segments would be called 91 seconds with lou niles and whatever sometimes the talking will be more than 91 seconds sometimes it'll be less but basically i'll pull some good questions or a question from the in your neighborhood play it on the air and whatever related to that question uh we'll play some songs related to that question you know if i ask somebody about you know what were some of your influences what were some of the local bands that influenced you coming up um and they say you know drop a couple names of bands then we'll you know play that and play the bands on the radio so you've been working on this for a second who's about to break who's about to blow out of this market right now well i don't i i think there's a lot of bands that could Um, i mean if you ask halloran it's weatherbox well, they're good, or he's good. Um, yeah, exactly. That's what I thought too. I mean, it is sort of a that band reminded me of the Offenders. <laughs> it did. It's, it wasn't a punk versus not punk thing, but it's just a guy in the front, sort of you know, gesticulating over his whole thing, ro- ro- rotating people through. Right. Um, you know, I really, I really thought that Okapi's son um, had a chance to blow up. Um, I thought that. You know, it wasn't because of, you know, mind-blowing songwriting or anything like that. But I just think they had a thing and they had a couple catchy songs and they had an opportunity with, you know, kind of a live music element meeting this uh, EDM explosion that seems to be everywhere. That uh, that was a band that had an opportunity at, at the right place at the right time that something could have happened for them. Um, I think there's a lot of other San Diego bands um, 
with all different kinds of uh, in all different kinds of genres right now that uh, that are really exciting and that, that's kind of why I started hanging around again and, and telling Halloran hey you know if if you're ever sick or you need to go somewhere you should let me fill in for you no designs of taking the show or taking over the show I, you know I'm much more interested in this video element doing these web episodes um, but uh, I just felt like the scene uh, in the last few years had reached this point where in so many different genres the music quality is so good the quality of the recordings is so good um, the, it's an exciting time very similar to the it's gonna blow period um, 1992 to 1996 with all with the two Mayday shows and all those bands getting signed out of San Diego at that time it's a whole different record industry so um, I don't really see you know 12 to 15 bands getting signed by you know, Columbia, Geffen, Atlantic, and uh, Restless, and MCA, like all those bands did back then. But um, I see opportunity happening. I just worry about the San Diego disease. That We have to come up with a name for the San Diego disease. Because, I mean, Mraz got Saturday Night Live, and Jewel got Saturday Night Live, and Blink got Saturday Night Live, but then that's it. Like, Switchfoot didn't. And so... There appears to have formed a glass ceiling for the city that we haven't put anything out since, since Blink One Eighty Two. That that made it to that level, well, which is a great benchmark. I mean, a lot of them have gotten like Conan, have gotten member Kilborn and that kind of thing, and gotten right. that kind of late night exposure, which is super important. But I think the ultimate demarcation is when you make SNL, you've achieved a higher level. You know. Yeah, and sort of, and that's where the city starts to say, "Oh, we've created another really huge one." Well, I mean, that's very interesting because as you were running down that list until you got to Switchfoot, I, I was about ready to chime in with, "Well, those are people with incredibly strong work ethics. And those are people that worked very, very, very hard to get where they got." Um, Jewel and Mraz um, and uh, Blink, uh, they had a good team. And they worked hard. Um, uh, Switchfoot worked very hard. They have a great work ethic. They've they've had great teams. They've gone through multiple teams. But um, and I, you know, I wonder. I, I always felt like, you know, from my era, POD. I, I got a lot of crap for playing POD on the radio for a lot of reasons. One, because at the time I was playing them, they were very hard. They were hard, like Rage Against the Machine, hard, and. Um, before Rage Against what probably about three or four years before Rage Against the Machine existed, and um, they were extremely Christian. It wasn't super evident in their lyrics. It was at a live show. The, the Sunday we do some preaching between songs, but uh, I wonder if that editor's note uh, uh, POD two thousand two Saturday Night Live. Oh, there you go. I don't. But, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I wonder I, if that ha has anything to do because Switchfoot used to, you know, it's not well, so that, evident anymore. But it used to be a lot more evident, uh, a lot more preaching and things like that. And wonder if that's that helped. I don't know. I don't know at all. I, I'm I'm super happy about Switchfoot almost all the time. I think that they're one of the best bands. I took my 
kids to go see them as their first rock concert yeah. at the Del Mar Pavilion. It's it's interesting for all those. And uh, "Meant to Live" is one of my favorite songs up there with you know Plush and it's all that epic, stuff. Yeah. And it's it's one of my one of, one of uh, August's favorite bands as well too. Switchfoot. I just find it interesting guys. and notable that that's that's the rain that made SNL. Nothing really before it except for Tom Waits, maybe Frank Zappa. Tom Waits is awesome. You know, and then zero after. And throw POD in. But hey, Lou, they're all your bands. From that era, you mean? Well, I I, I think a lot of the good bands or bands that seem to have had this tag that they're going to blow up, um, they all move away. And then uh, maybe that's what happens. Yeah, so, you know, Dum Dum Girls has a chance and Colt has a chance and... I see that. I, I I definitely see that. But I'm just saying we're in accomplishment mode now, and in accomplishment mode, all those bands from that level made that hey, and then no one else did, you know. And maybe Blink's a bad example, but I, I don't know what your association with that band is. But you know, they were very very much a band that broke it, 91X, and uh, came out and got super huge right then and did every possible thing. Yeah, I mean they played their stuff from a cassette when they were called Blink on the radio show. And then they put out a seven inch on cargo. I played that a lot. I, re I really uh, played there. They, you know, it wasn't a band that, that was like my favorite kind of music about farts and, and poop and butts and stuff like that. <laughs> it was just not the music I was into, but I played it because it was really good songwriting musically. And, um, and that's the way I treated a lot of the stuff on loudspeaker is I've played stuff that was just good. Um, and th that's why I wasn't really confined. I got a lot of crap for that too, that I, I wasn't just playing 91 X style music. I was playing, you know, string quartet and I was playing Matt Roth and I was playing crazy bagpipes and punk rock and acoustic music and blues music and rockabilly music, the whole yeah, it just had to be good music from San Diego or Tijuana. But, I mean, so was Halloran. And Halloran actually made a national name playing Dwight Yoakam in drive time on 91X and that kind of thing and, and having that kind of thing transfer. And I, I don't know, it, it, one led the other or the other led the other, but that's just genius in the same room saying, I know, let's just be sure we widen this at this one spot because we can you know right yeah um so look i know you want to do a concert called mayday how on earth are you going to pull it off <sighs> you know I, I was really fired up about this um w well over uh, wait what, what month is it so it would have been it would have been 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 probably about 18 months ago it just really hit me that, you know, like what I was just talking about earlier, that the scene, um, just everything was clicking, it seemed. That, you know, you've got bands that are big and selling out pretty good capacity shows at all different levels, you know, whether it's, a, you know, a copy sun and Dr. Seahorse sound or whether it's, um, you know, Weatherbox sound or Blackout Party. Um, there just seemed to be a wide range of music. Gilbert Castellanos, you know, just a wide range of really good music in this town and uh, enough of the bands that have broken out of this town were still around or coming back. There was a bunch of reunion shows. I thought, what better thing to do 
than bring back May Day or a show like, maybe not call it May Day, but a show like May Day and uh, have some of the bands that played the original May Days and the best uh, big bands in town today and some of the up-and-coming bands that people hadn't really heard of yet. Just the same style as, as May Day back then. Um, and, and really make an effort to try and get some of these bands signed. Find them booking agents, find them record labels, publicists, whatever, whatever it takes to get you quote unquote signed yeah, these what days. Signed me. Yeah, what does sign mean these days is a big question. But yeah, is break a band Sony out of a... San Diego again, like we did back then. I mean that was that was designed. Bill Silva uh, and his team came up with the idea for May Day and that was a design thing. There was a lot of effort put into that. I don't think any of the bands from back then really know how much effort, even on my show, that I put in every week to trying to get bands signed. And I wasn't getting paid for it. Um, I was getting paid $22 a week to do loudspeaker. And I wasn't getting paid to spend hours and hours a week faxing every A&R department in Los Angeles and New York that I could get my hands on. And that's how I knew a lot of those guys when I, I moved up there. But uh, you know, I was faxing you know, Virgin, Columbia, Atlantic, all, all the record labels, my playlist every week and saying, hey, here's the bands, here's what's coming up next week, here's everybody's favorite, here's my playlist from this week, and then I would constantly do, you know, top top bands, most requested, and all these kind of things is kind of push, hey, these are bands you should come look at and you should come sign. That, that doesn't, do you think the balance between the effectiveness of your own distribution, i.e., you know, selling it online or doing whatever you have to do versus the availability of it being able to be stolen. Do you think those things balance each other out well enough? Um, I, I think it depends. Mm -hmm. I think it really depends on what happens for you. Um, it, it could crush you. Um, but I think these days, from what I can tell, if you have the right work ethic and you truly do have a good album, you have good songs and you have good live performance and you're organized, um, it, 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 the opportunity is there for you to seize. You can have bad luck and you can get lost in the shuffle because of the internet, but you can also utilize it. You can utilize Kickstarter to use your fan base and put out albums and get your albums crowdfunded. And then you just got to work out hard and you have to be dedicated at it. And you have to go on these, you know, go on a little tour that's uh, feasible and regional and just keep spreading the region. It's the same kind of thing that you had to do back in the day to grow it when uh, you were a baby band, as they were called. Um, it's just that uh, you don't have that funding from a record label. But the bonus is that then you're not in debt to that record label. And when you sell a CD for 10 or $15, that most of that is going back into the band pot. One of the um, things I did this past weekend is I watched a TED Talk from Amanda Palmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Amanda Palmer uh, is an artist who I have employed professionally, is a member of the Dresden Dolls, uh, who played a sold-out show at the Viper Room for me, um, but got super famous over the years because... She got signed to a major label, and then the major label um, put their record out, and then the major label saw that they'd only sold 25,000 copies and deemed it a cataclysmic failure, and then they parted ways. And Amanda Palmer replaced the label system with a Kickstarter system, a lot like what Lewis is saying. And um, 
so she took 25,000 donors and came to a personal funding value of 1.1 million dollars off of 25,000 and she found great irony in the fact that the label had sold 25,000 records and it was a horrible failure but she sold 25,000 somethings on Kickstarter and retained uh, 1.1 million dollars in earnings from it mm-hmm. and this it, but she didn't spend any money on that original bout of advertising or press or whatever they had to do to sell those 25,000 in the first place but so, you, you, there, there's a fair presumption that a chicken and the egg presumption right oh that that marketing is what made her but well, she wouldn't th- have had those 25,000 people we uh, there this is a democracy and there's three of us and I, <laughs> i'd love to hear from all three of you but what i know about labels and what i know about labels even at the time that amanda palmer and dresden dolls were signed at the uh, initially was that labels weren't signing anything that didn't already have critical velocity anyway interesting so yeah. they had the critical velocity that they were trying to capitalize on. They weren't making you from scratch. You did. They did not find you at a diner in Poughkeepsie. No. They, you know, you were already touring. You already had a tour base. You were already making some moves in the whole world. And they were trying to say, "Oh, I'll make you move to the next level." And then they failed. And the, yeah, the la- the label helped push you over the edge. And I, and this this kind of ties back to the the San Diego itis of San Diego disease that I mentioned earlier. Um, and I, I think that it's, it, it happens. It happened back in the day when I was working with bands or just having a radio show and trying to get bands, uh, attention and get them signed and get San Diego attention. Um, but a lot of bands, they work pretty hard. They get out there, they get excited. They do some recordings, you know, they, they pull together an EP or something like that. And then they sell out the Casbah. Finally, they get a a Thursday. They move up to a Friday, and um, they think, "Well, there we are. Now we've made it. Now, how come the labels aren't you know knocking on our door?" And if they do come knocking, they're you know they're kind of a you know sitting back in their chair, kind of feeling of you know what are you going to do for us? Well, that's you know that's part of the problem it's it's got to be past that you know you've got to keep building or uh, you know if you don't like what they have to offer then keep going and and take it to the next level yourself and then get the leverage that maybe you can get what you want from them um and and that's where i think the bands will break out of san diego and those are the bands that will have longevity and have life you know if you're just the flavor of the month and happen to get signed um, there's a good chance that you're you're just not going to make it. You you haven't built, you haven't grown, you haven't you haven't laid down roots. You don't have a, a following all over the place that was there from the beginning. The the people that really count. Um, I could definitely I could definitely buy into that. I definitely think that these days signing is a minor break. It's not a major break. It's not a career fulfilling break like it was uh, back in the day. It's a minor break. It's a lot like getting something in a commercial or something in a movie or any of those things. Or maybe they're intertwined somehow. But each one of those things is a, a particularly advantageous lottery ticket. That, that that might be the thing that gets you your... And we talked about this with the Jake Nager podcast, the Pomple Moose thing, where you, know, you get a 
crazy ad campaign that then delivers you or jet or any of those guys yes yeah, you know so that's, that's the that's the coup de gras today that's what everybody tries for today if you look at you know what rocket from the crypt and you know jay who just closed up shop but uh, what rocket from the crypt and john reese took from their interscope experience and not in the exact same way we're talking about where you just capture that email list because it really wasn't like that back then mm -hmm. but you you capture that mailing list and then you go and you, and you just kind of get on the phone and, and you book it yourself and you say okay uh, the, the guitar player is going to be in charge of t-shirts uh, i'm going to be in charge of booking the shows you're going to be in charge of making sure all the fans know you know that type of thing um I, you might also look at through my pilot and you know how paul then through i'd love to talk to him how did how did he parlay his fan base into the blackout uh, blackheart procession fan base and etc so who, who who were the people that were resourceful that said okay well you know that was screwed you guys are jerks uh record label um we thought that was a pretty good album um you really hurt our feelings but we're gonna keep going we're gonna we're gonna do this we're gonna do that maybe maybe the band fell apart because they were so heartbroken but you know you created a new project and you kept going because music was what you're about so um I'd be interested to understand. You know, there's certain bands that just boom, they just ended. When the when the label ended, they ended. Um, One of the lottery tickets I wanted to sort of bring out in regards to what you're saying is um, Saturn did a car ad and featured a band called The Walkman. And uh, The Walkman had such an interesting, innovative sound that was unlike anything anyone had heard previously and would have never been heard in terrestrial radio or MTV or any of the other inputs that most of the population were getting. And it was only going to come out if it caught you by surprise. And no better surprise than Saturn, a subsidiary of GM, running a car ad that was probably running during football and all of that and giving you a sound that uh, you would have never normally heard. We'll, we'll play the song. Wouldn't we also... It wouldn't, couldn't you also say that uh, wasn't it a, a Skittles commercial in the Postal Service? Yeah, and then wasn't exactly, it? Um, yes. What was that band with the cute girl and they did the the Apple commercial, like a four piece band with a girl fronting it? They did the Apple commercial and then they were famous. And I would even argue that um, uh, Band of Skulls really couldn't get you know couldn't get hired for anything in the United States until the I think it was a Camaro commercial. Um, with light, oh. light of the morning. No, I know it was a it was a commercial for the new V6 Mustang in 2013. No, yeah, so um, it it seems to be like that. And you got a lot of the uh, a couple Zach Braff's indie films, you know, launched a few people. Yeah, like Grey's Anatomy. So n yeah. maybe today's record label is you hire a, a publicist, you hire a, a publishing, do a publishing deal with somebody who's very active in sync licensing. You get some of those sync licenses going, and that might maybe your way to. But then you you got to be okay with just you know bastardizing yourself and and on the feist on feist that's it yeah feist and uh, you know on your advertisement at the, what's the little dive in Philly on your advertisement in the dive for the dive in Philly it's got to say you know uh, the Palace Ballroom uh, featured in you know Saturn ad you know the Saturn commercial <laughs> band. You know, so you've be heard a, it, I swear. It's, you, it's definitely a good song. Yeah. You either got to be okay. okay with that or not, you know? Okay, so 
I don't know, Future Islands got famous basically because they played uh, a David Letterman show and they'd had a, a groundswell, a San Diego style following for years, probably five, eight years. And then they did a, a groundbreaking show in March of 2014 that got them on every map. With And then their song charted across independent radio and got super huge. But they did it completely without any sort of a commercial influence. And that never happens anymore. It never happens anymore. What I'm trying to tell you and what I'm trying to reason out with you and have you explain to me because you're smarter than I am about it is Feist and uh, all these are the bands that we've mentioned, uh, the Walkman specifically, their sound was so effing esoteric. No one would throw Jet in that. Jet son- sounded like ACDC and was going to do their thing. And that was they were a- on Apple commercial. That's all I heard about them. Right, right. They're the number one ever. The number one ever. Feist is number two. Uh, but these guys who've got an esoteric sound that somehow cut through and find an audience, it, you know, it's the, you don't get signed anymore. You cash a lottery ticket, and a lottery ticket cashes out sometimes. And Walkman cashed one. Pomplamoose cashed one. But it's Vice also cashed one. And the most expensive lottery ticket ever. Like to put all that effort into being a band, like just you for were your gonna one put chance. That, uh, you were gonna put that effort in anyway. You're 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 actually just trying to um, find some sort of a ROI. Yeah, we're talking about we're talking about yeah, avenues of, of promotion for your band that you're already. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. I have I have two questions. If you're capital cities, but you could do that. Um, but I I think it's more, um, you know, what do I do? You know, I I'm gonna go tour. I I got a I I got us a show in Phoenix. I got us a show in L.A. I got us a show at Slow Brewing, and that's all I can get. You know, what what now? How do I get further? What how do I get people's attention? Questions. One is it getting easier or harder? You know, since the good old days or whatever. So much harder. Really, interesting too. Before, which probably also related. What is the success rate? Like, I, there's a lot of bands I know of that aren't, you know, making money. And it, I mean, obviously, if you really love doing it, then you're going to keep doing it regardless. It, um, but if that's all you're doing, and I'm going to put my short answer in, and we're going to hand the entire answer off to Lou. But it, yeah, it's so much harder, and the Paquetti book sort of reigns. There are a very, very, very few people making a ton of money in music and a ton of people who are fooling themselves thinking it's not an avocation, an expensive avocation that they're not ever really going to make money at and and looking for lottery tickets. Lou. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that uh, easy is the wrong word, but I definitely think it was easier back then because it, it was a more narrow and simple formula. You had to, you had to build yourself. You had to make a really good demo or at least a okay independent release uh, that got the label's attention and then you had to get signed by a label and then their departments did all that. Nowadays, you can make music a lot easier. You can make really good quality music a lot easier. In fact, some people who aren't that good are getting away with it because of digital enhancement and digital fixes. But uh, there's so much noise out there. It takes more creativity and more work to you know actually make a living at it and get it out there yeah looks hard outside of your hometown that those are not the eggs uh, or that's not the basket in which i would place my eggs i mean i'm also terrible at it so that's that's it, it doesn't matter you know you actually own a production company bnb 
and you work in video services. And so you would like to think that um, you're in a business that's a growth industry. And so then why not talk about video, <laughs> film, music, production, all that stuff. And it, do you see there being a giant contract nationally licensed upside no. to what you're doing? No, because there's, there's nothing we're doing that there's anybody else could do much better. Like we, we put out a good product for how much it costs and stuff like that, but our capabilities are limited in mostly gear and time. It's also not, I mean, like for the time being, it's just Dan. My production company is B&B Bros Own Boyd. Dan does all the work and makes all the money. However, I'm the one who pays for all of the stuff he uses to make this stuff. So I'm sort of a silent partner in the sense that I have 50% and don't have to do anything, but I do have to have a regular job to finance some of those efforts. Yeah, but I mean, in Los Angeles, you have a viable business model. Do you know why? No, contracting. I don't know. No, because you never know that one of your contracts, one of the jobs that you get might turn into The Simpsons. Might turn into something that winds up getting us a way larger production deal and they just carry you with it. And I mean, so then suddenly B&B has 27 employees in a catering line. I mean, that'd be cool. i definitely do that. I mean, again... W- we have consistent work, and Dan makes consistent money. And you're money. still a silent partner, and your your main I mean, like, job. I would definitely is, step in. Is yeah. driving fast cars where no one else can see. That's your job. Okay, we'll take that job. Right. Yeah. So in, in the in the television and film industry, some of what we're missing from the old model of the music industry still exists. There's still that the possibility that that opportunity that you release some documentary yourself or somehow get somebody's attention or you, you know, do get some contract or you do some uh, independent commercial or, or whatever it may be, or you're a web, web, a webisode person, a uh, web sensation and, and, you know, boom, you get, you get signed to do some sort of deal. I think that that still exists, but uh, as far as the music business goes, you know, it's, it, it and you know, most of the people I know, um, are doing it because they have to, you know, and they, they, they do have to break off and, and do day jobs and, and get through it. But they're, they're doing it because they, they have to even clinically. Yeah. yeah. The, the, you know, the Rob Crow and Paul Jenkins and you know, these are people that create some pretty amazing stuff. And, and, you know, some of them are fortunate enough to, to, um, you know, sort of make a living at it, you know, but it, it's not easy and it's a struggle and it's feast or famine, you know, it's, it's, it's great money for a, a certain tour around the record release. And then what, you know, and, and you're at the whim of every nine months or 12 months and, you know, POD, um, making music and can't, you know, can't get, can't get the people's attention in their own hometown. Uh, but they're, you know, big in Hong Kong and, um, just uh, there's just a lot of people. Our, our friend uh, Ron Fountainberry is a, a little wizard who just uh, hides away and releases music once in a while, sort of, but doesn't really release it. Um, but there's a forum in Japan waiting for that release. <laughs> right. Interesting. I mean, yeah, uh, it seems like a, a a way to do it. It just sounds terrifying and scary, and I'll I'm gonna continue to opt out. If you were gonna um buy a car tomorrow what do you think you'd get yeah money is not an object and then another one where money is an object <laughs> well you're doing no, that i was anyway, gonna right? try and swing back to mayday but now we're on cars 
Is this the cars and economics portion of the show? We haven't got to economics Jeez. yet. Yeah. If I could have any, if I could buy any kind of car. You're, you're getting rid of that, that commander, right? I'm trying to. But I mean, if we were talking about just any kind of car, I don't know. Do you miss If the... I could get rid of that car and get a different car? Yeah. Without just snap my fingers? It's not, not a have trick to go question. through the whole process? Yeah. <laughs> God. I'd probably just get an Xterra or something like that. And just, what? Xterra? Like, you, you, you did a... you turn into a lady before you did this? <laughs> yeah. You had a Volvo wagon, so. Sweet. An R? Yeah. <laughs> the V70R is a very cool car. Yeah. You had an XC or something, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. The high suspension. It's pretty nice, yeah. Yeah. You know, but Heated seats and the the manliest car you ever had was the Cutlass. Sweet. Yeah. Four four two. Yeah. No, it wasn't a four four two. But uh, it was a muscle car, car while the working in Los Angeles. That yeah, that's pretty cool. Wind gas was ninety nine cents a gallon. Was I it mean, real loud? Yeah. It was real pretty loud. loud and dangerous. Awesome. Yeah. The seatbelt didn't work very well, and um, the the dashboard, the fortification behind the dashboard was was really questionable. But firewall. Uh, that was a good, uh, yeah. There wasn't one, so <laughs> it was. Uh, it was a good A and R vehicle, I think. Yeah, it was uh, good for danger and terrifying, and you know, doing the. So you're still on that '63 series wagon, huh? Uh, I mean, the the E63 wagon is one of the coolest cars you can really buy. I mean, it's a it's just a regular Mercedes wagon, but has like 560 horsepower and rear facing mm -hmm. seats. Which is necessary, and do like a 10-second right? quarter mile. Oh, right. Yes. Necessary, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. sounds like that hammer of Thor. I'm just hating the gas situation. And, it's uh, cheap now. I mean... Your car is tremendously inefficient. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, is it four-liter? What but motor I mean, is it? I have? need a large vehicle like that to hold surfboards and things like that. And Wagons are good wish. for that job. Um, I, but I like to be if, higher up. What, what for? Why do you need ride height? To see through traffic because it drives me nuts. It's, yeah, it's but then a disease I caught in Los Angeles raises your center of gravity, and you can't go around corners as fast. It doesn't feel doesn't feel like you're. Do, you, to do, me, that's good news because I just don't can't. want the driver cornering. But I love you know, the feeling I, of driving. Every yeah, input. And, I mean, with people in the car, or no. No, yeah, I mean, nah. Because yeah. I mean, yeah. I was in a car. What are these crazy Ford Mustang super aftermarket versions? I was in one of these things, like a $65,000 Mustang. Was it scary? And <laughs> of course, you don't buy the thing to drive like a grandma. And I would prefer everyone drove like a grandma, but no. And so we're cornering, going through freeway traffic and, you know, shooting gaps. And we're all 40 something. Come on. That's awesome. That's cool. I know. I said, yeah, did that whole thing. Dangerous. Oh, no. <laughs> hmm. No. Well, I, I guess. Um, uh, I guess if I was. I was being gaudy, and I was back in L.A. I would I would get some sort of luxury SUV of some kind. Man, I was looking at those Yukon um, uh, hybrids, and it, don't it, get the hybrid. It's just a waste uh, of everybody's time. I know. I, it I was, still gets like six miles to the gallon. It doesn't matter. I was getting to that, but I knew it would be like <laughs> shock therapy for you. <laughs> it, it literally the Yukon hybrid, really. Get, still get 17 miles to the gallon. And it says hybrid all over it, and that number is fake. That number is if you're driving around the on the battery power at 30 awful. miles an hour everywhere. Well, somebody else was paying for the gas and the repairs. I, I've, I've always wanted one of those, uh, you know, Mutual of Omaha, uh, Wild Kingdom 
uh, Land Rovers. <laughs> yeah, Defender. <laughs> Those uh, things are I cool. Would just, they... I would just want to be, but I would want to be using it that way as well and just find myself somewhere in Guatemala, you know, looking out through the jungle to surf break. You know? So to make, cool. my, to make my wife completely hate me uh, recently, I shared with her uh, my latest vehicle, and it was the exact same parameters. If it was a company car with someone else on the gas, and I, I wanted to get something that was... I wanted to get a Ford Interceptor. And the Interceptor in the... police the, Interceptor? Like a Crown Vic? Not a Crown Vic, but the one based the on LTD. the Explorer. Oh, that? Okay. Oh, the new one. The right. one just came out. Right. That There's dog still... in a Detroit, in the right. Detroit show. Right. That'd be cool. There was uh, some journalist who just got got handed one. He said it was a really pain in the ass to drive because everybody drives a little slow in front of you. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, it, I just if there was one way to like get shot at less, it would be to get the interceptor. It looks exactly like you can just go buy them, especially but... in L.A. And I found a few on um, uh, Auto Trader. Like you know, sometimes the departments get the. Uh, get the interceptor and then they can't use it so then they sell it really fast and like someone else buys it and usually the people who buy it work for Wackenhut or some private security company or whatever but there's a market for them there's a uh in every capital city in every state there's a state surplus store right and you go to any one of those and pick up any number of used police vehicles and they just have spray paint down the side but it'll buff out uh and then you just got and they take all the stickers off but you got this police service thing it's got holes in the dash where they mounted everything Right. So if you want people to drive slow around you and be real annoyed all the time, definitely get one of those. But man, that Interceptor and that Explorer body made a lot of sense. One of the big reasons was it fits big people in it. Like you can, you know, four big people can get in the thing and roll around. And also, you know, it, it'll move and it'll be super sturdy and super safe. Three liter twin turbo V6. Something the, like this that. This is for when you're cruising with the big, with the, big with black family. and... <laughs> Um, and Warren Sapp and or what, or what? generally yeah. yeah I um I if you got to have a uh, car every, now and again and especially lately I've had to have a car where I had to drive people around in and um and you got to pay attention to it because I mean United Airlines isn't paying attention to it I don't know if anyone's flown recently but you get into a modern airplane seat and you've lost three inches of leg room Oh yeah, I mean it's not efficient to fly people around. I mean, really isn't. I I just flew to Nashville and back, and I got a. I looked on SeatGuru.com. Please look at that before you fly next time. Um, <laughs> and uh, I I got the worst possible seat on a flight from Houston to San Diego, where the seat actually cut my knee two inches before my leg should have naturally stopped. Like it, they don't care. Hey, there's your seat. There you go. Yeah, eight hundred dollars, please. Full flight. Oh. We're hey, we're an extremely full flight tonight, everybody. So like, whatever seat you got, that's the one you're gonna get. Everything is, and we're gonna check everything that doesn't move. So like, oh, all right, go. What what bugs me is that every time they raise their prices, which they have to do, I admit, they blame it on fuel prices. But every time fuel prices go down, their prices don't drop. They're no. still the same same price, but they do it for inflationary reasons or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but Mayday Festival. Um, Back to that real quick, because I did want to mention something about that, which is what's going on. What, what do you think about this Kaboo or whatever this new one is, slash crossed? Other fest. than it's not in May. Um, Kaboo, I, I just looked, glanced at it a couple times. I think it's uh, fascinating. And I, I also think 
that uh, it's odd that San Diego hasn't had a big festival. I hadn't thought about it before until I saw that. I thought, wow, yeah, you know, it's interesting that San Diego doesn't have some, because of the weather and how much, you know, we're laughing. Well, it's raining now, but how much we're laughing at the the snow back east and yeah. Midwest and it's the middle of December, it's the middle of January, it's the middle of February, and we're sitting here, too, it's too hot, um, that uh, San Diego hasn't snagged some sort of big festival, and maybe it's the venue problem, you know? Maybe that goes back to the whole stadium issue. And um, But, uh, yeah, why not Del Mar? Why I, don't want, that I don't want to go to Del Mar. There's no hotels around Del Mar, so everybody's got to drive in. I know they have parking capacity. But I think Del Mar's pretty stuffy and pretty pretty bad. I don't know that, if the, it, they'll let it happen again, depending on how it goes off. And they have a drinks contract already, so everything goes on there has to go through the booze from Del Mar Racetrack, which is expensive and terrible. Oh. Um, so did that you hear it, that, that it was uh, presented by Sierra Nevada? Oh, cool. Kaboo! Would is Sierra Nevada a craft brewer from San Diego? No, they're from um, Chico. Yes, right. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Zero Nevada is at our event. Got, got the right state. Yeah. That's right. cool. Right, so the organizers are from Chicago and have no clue, and they just stepped in. Uh, the, the organizers from San Clemente. That's that's Roger. Roger does the coach house. So why would you not capitalize on the craft beer culture? and? Because no San Diego craft brewers spend money. Mm. They don't. So you're not going to get $100,000 from Stone to do anything. Yeah, they... Zero Nevada probably paid... They paid thirty-five grand for that. They probably overpaid. Ooh, they probably paid more oh, than that's, that. Uh, yeah, super oh, but cool. they, do they get a buy contract out of it, or is it just a name sponsorship? They probably paid a million dollars, wouldn't you say? A million uh, for how many people? What's the capacity on it? Thirty thousand a day. Thirty thousand. So sixty thousand total. Okay, I mean that's that's a pretty big number. Yeah, thirty-five thousand. Thirty-five thousand. I don't agree with a million. I don't agree with thirty-five thousand. I mean, it depends how many. But, if if they have the exclusive drinks contract, if all the beers sold there are going to be Sierra Nevadas. Then they're going to make a lot of money, so that money just gets subtracted from the sponsorship value. Number one, that's not bad news. It's it's not as bad a news as a uh, sports arena. Although sports arena, through its bud contract, does get uh, a Chicago brewer that I like a lot. What's the one with the duck? Goose Island. Goose Island. But it's owned by Anheuser Busch now. Right, bud. So, but three one two is not a bad IPA. No, it's fine. Get one. Yeah, it's perfectly good. You know. So, but anyway. I, I wonder if there's going to be a local music element at all to Kaboo. But... No, nope. uh, the lineup's up there. out there. I don't know. I didn't recognize anybody as being local. And they said uh, last thing I saw it said and eight others. I thought that was super hot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, um, unless I'm just totally out of touch and that's a band. Well, they they might just not know who those eight are. Maybe the first thing you have to understand eight is, others um, could be. Those K-pop guys band. are one thousand percent motivated to pick up where street scene left off, hmm. but they're not from San Diego, so this festival is getting relatively plantation managed. So people from another city are running a festival in your town, and running, and that's and that's, that's why, how you that's, know. That's why that's I started you know. with that sour. There's no local, but it it really at the top side feels an awful lot like some of those, not the last year, but the mid-year street scenes where no doubt in the killers likely would have been because, you know, White Stripes was a street scene band. You know, they went down the middle of the road. They were down where Stone Temple Pilots and all those bands were. They were, and Kid Rock was a band for that. And they were never trying to be Coachella. They were always trying to be 
an accessible regional festival. The, the only thing you have to remember is your accessible regional festival is being run by people who don't live in San Diego, who picked up Sierra Nevada as their sponsor. They did a really good job with the festival, except when you're saying and eight others. Because if the eight yeah. others aren't drives like Jehu and Weatherbox and all the bands we've already mentioned, then it's going to generally be void of personality from the region that they're attempting to be a regional festival from. Right. I just think San Diego is the largest small town in the United States. And they really, you know, people get really sour and grumpy and they smell a rat. And if it's, if you don't bring them into the fold, I think you're set up for disaster. I don't know. I I don't agree with that. I, I think that we've got a, 53% 53% oblivion factor on our hands where 53% so are, are going to absolutely just go, no doubt, no way, let's go. It'll be great. It'll be super fun and and not even care, you know, and that, you know, that 53% never heard of the Casbah. Well, what happened? 53% to... right. never attended a show with the belly up. They've heard of the belly up because they're it's in Del Mar and they're near Del Mar, so they heard of it and they might go one day like for their fortieth birthday for five minutes, but that's it. That's fifty three percent and that's enough to carry a thirty thousand ticket base on a regional festival. Right. You could literally have something completely disassociated with everything that loudspeaker means. Everything that even ninety one X means. All across the board and have a Dave Matthews show break out where it just didn't matter. <laughs> right. Well, I, I hope it's successful. And if they don't uh, include a local band element, I think that's fine too. There's a lot of local music opportunities in San Diego as it is, I think. Maybe too many. Yeah. And I, I couldn't care less. I, I wanted the thing to be interesting and successful. And you know what? So what? If it, if that's the weird news, if that becomes the weird news quip that like they did the whole thing and no one from here ever even played on the thing, guess what year two is going to look like? It's going to look like blowback and you're going to get everything you wanted in year two and that's going to be good news. Right. That, I, that's I, not a problem. I, I'm, I'm almost taking it back as I think about it though. As I think about uh, some of the street scene opportunities, um, namely when I was managing a band called Rochelle Rochelle, and we got to open up for we got to open up on a stage that was uh, live and Stone Temple Pilots, um, and uh, when Rochelle Rochelle hit the stage, you know there's thousands of people uh, at this on this ma- massive uh, tarmac in front of the stage. So that's kind of opportunities like that would It'll be kind of good. Would be good opportunity for some of the local bands to really have that kind of a stage to go off you know they, they sometimes they get a chance on um shows like uh x fest or uh spf uh more independence jam and i think those are those are kind of the only ones the big shows uh, you know all, all the other opportunities you know are maybe what a thousand fifteen hundred type of beer fest shows mm-hmm. or you got sd music thing or some of these where, where where the bands are just playing in the clubs they normally play in but these opportunities for bands to open up to a captive audience and have that chance to blow away a bunch of people that, like you're saying, never been to the Belly Up, never been to the Casbah, never been to Santa Bar, never been to a local music show, um, 
would be like, wow, who are these guys? Are great. What? They're from here? That's yeah. a really good point. You know, and it goes right back into your wheelhouse because, Andy, economic activity aggregates. Mm-hmm. When it happens, other economic activity wants to associate itself with it. It's just a nature of the economy. Spending drives spending. And, you know, so this is like getting the Super Bowl. It's like getting Comic-Con. It, it's like that. And it's basically cornering out in the music industry and cornering it out in San Diego. Who cares if in the first year model, it's not as inclusive as anyone likes? The fact is, it's that in this market, in a venue I have personally thought had should have, should have been utilized the entire time anyway. And I think it'll only bring good things to us. We just got to sort of let it happen, support it, understand where it's coming from, understand why it may not look the way you want it in the first year, and just sort of help it along. And it'll localize. Yeah, they're from out of town. They'll localize. They'll, they'll get people within the market to aid and abet if they want to do it five or eight times in the future, you know, they're, they're human beings too. They'll, they'll sort it out. You know, it'll be fine. Right. I, I think that's what needs to happen. I think that, that in San Diego, if you want to break out of San Diego, if you want to go to the next level, it's, there needs to be more opportunities for local artists to open up on big shows. Um, there, the, I love this, this show, San Diego on NBC. Uh, I think is excellent for local bands. Um, 91X has the local break. Um, I, I has to be good. I'd, I'd love to see any metrics on that, but it has to be a great opportunity for local bands to get that kind of radio play. If you go back to to the 90s, you know um, when loudspeaker was really had the opportunity with all these amazing bands and the May Day events were happening, and then bands that kind of graduated from loudspeaker and Halloran would put them in regular airplay, the Blinks, the uh, Rocket from the Crypts, the Rugburns, the, the Rugburns, the band, and Jewel. Um, I think those were critical critical moments that uh, helped those bands grow outside of the city. Jewel being played, um, I've never seen a record label not give up. And we talked about, you know, people dropping people after 25,000, but uh, Atlantic records had signed hundreds of bands in the early nineties. Um, uh, my good friends, inch, my good friends, rust being a couple of them, um, a up and coming band called extra fancy was exploding, a, a band that, that I don't like at all, but was exploding called skid row <laughs> Atlantic. I was behind the scenes at Atlantic because of inch and rust and jewel and Atlantic dropped 350 bands over a couple months period of time, fired a bunch of people, and they turned around and they made the decision to concentrate on Hootie, STP, and Jewel. Nice. And, you know, finally, in a very, very sad and painful way, a record company actually making the right decision and sticking with it. And they had to stick with Jewel for a long time before that album actually started to break. And and uh yeah that's front page news how long it took yeah 91x um championing uh jewel uh was was a big part of i think other radio stations taking a chance on alternative stations playing that you know a little affair kind of music and kind of did she sing the titanic song no, no, no. That was Celine no, that's Dion. Celine Dion. Oh, but arms um, of an angel. I I wrote I wrote a little thing on my Facebook the other day that that Jewel then shared 
um, that kind of touched on the fact that that whole acoustic um, explosion in that area, the Jules album being one of them, of course, Suzanne Vega and a whole bunch of other people really need some credit, but that whole Lilith Fair explosion kind of invented AAA and adult alternative and, and for a while there gave a chance to a whole different kind of music um, and still, you know, 91X and K-Rock and some other stations is the center of that. So Lou, we got about 14% through what I wanted to talk to you with you. So would you come back? Oh, sure. Would it be possible for me to like in, in get you to come back and do maybe a second session and see if we can get through maybe some larger portion of what we wanted to talk to sure. talk to you about? All right. So anyway, we're going to have to cap it there because we've been going for a second. But what a great conversation. Lou Niles, thank you so much for coming out. Yeah, you're, so you're awesome to come out and uh, talk to us. And uh, this has been the conversation I'd hoped we'd had. Uh, I'd like to have so much more. And um, uh, for Andy and myself, uh, this is FYA, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for having me. <laughs>